Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 as we start a new chapter. I've entitled our Bible study, Prophecy is History in Advance. Prophecy is History in Advance. So consider some of these names, Lucifer and Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, King Darius, Cyrus, Alexander the Great. You could even include in there Judas. What could they all possibly have in common? All of them were living in different times and different places, but they all shared something in common, at least in light of our time today and our zeroing in on this chapter of the Bible. They all shared in common this thought that they could outsmart God, that they were smarter than him. They thought that their way was better than God's way, as it was clearly revealed to them. They thought that they could, could, they could get away with their rebellion. They thought that they could get away with their disobedience, not only against God, but against his word and what he said. And they were all wrong. And I believe with the exception of Nebuchadnezzar, it appears to us that all of this lifetime mistakes that they made were fatal, both physically and spiritually. It seems that only Nebuchadnezzar recognized the error of his way and repented. You see, God is able with precise accuracy to predict the future. God in his omniscience knows all things. And it makes sense that if you knew all things, that you could predict something that hasn't happened yet. There's nothing that God doesn't know. And since he knows all things, he's able to predict with 100% accuracy what will happen in the future. He's always right. He's always on target, and he can be trusted all the time. His word, the Bible, is so reliable that we can look back and see it. You can jot it down in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56. It says, Praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. There isn't one promise that has failed. Not one promise. And to me, that's comforting. I hope it's comforting to you to know that God's word stands fast. And and you have to think about it in the perspective of who we are and where we are. I mean, here we are in this room on this little corner of Hampton and Biscay in Aurora, in Colorado, in the United States, on the North American continent, on this planet, in this solar system, with a Bible open on our laps that we read and mark, that we receive and obey, God's written word just for you and me in a language that we can understand and act upon. That we know it as Jesus taught us that there isn't one thing, not, one, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until heaven and earth disappear. Or like in Psalm 119, verse 89, your eternal word, O God, stands firm. Or in the New King James, is settled in heaven. 
And how do we know that this book is true? Why should we trust it? We've spent considerable amount of time in other Bible studies looking at the various evidences that we have that the English translation that we have is accurate to the manuscripts and manuscripts accurate to the original autographs, which we believe to be inspired by God. And we can answer a lot of questions. I'm not afraid of that question. I'm not afraid of the question that says, I recently received an email from a young man that's in college. He goes, well, you know, with all the hundred uh, translations out there and they have this difference and they have difference, how can you trust the Bible? Well, of all the differences and all the things that we could go in on detail of how to trans- trust, and by the way, I wouldn't trust every single translation. We would want to trust those translations that are accurate and close to the original or to the manuscripts that are accurate and close to the transcripts. So not every translation is one that I would recommend. But how can we trust a Bible with a recommended translation? We can answer that a hundred different ways, but today I just want to offer to you this. I trust the Bible because of its prophecy. Prophecy is an amazing evidence to the trustworthy of God, trustworthiness of God's word. It's so important. It is a key piece of understanding the Bible and understanding the times in which we live. There will be times as a church family in our commitment to prophecy and to the prophetic word that we'll be accused of being obsessed with prophecy. I'm not obsessed with prophecy, if anyone would ever say that. Well, you know, Calvary Chapel and Ed, they're just obsessed with prophecy. I'm actually not obsessed with prophecy. I'm obsessed with the God that spoke forth prophecy. I'm obsessed with the word that he's given to me. And any serious student of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, has to deal with prophecy. Because prophecy is a large part of the word of God. As you consider Revelation, most of Revelation is still yet to come to pass. It is prophetic in nature. It's known as apocalyptic literature, speaking forth things that will happen in the future. And over a fourth of the Bible, and some people have higher numbers than even a fourth, but over a quarter of the Bible, or one out of every four verses is dealing with predictive prophecy. And I believe that it's the neglect of prophecy partly that has produced so many problems in the church. I mean, when you don't live with a heightened awareness of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you don't live with an expectation that Jesus can return at any moment, that does something to you. It changes the way you think. You, you day by day, don't believe that this world is passing. You do believe that things will get better, and I've seen worse, and you begin to downplay the reality of the days in which we live. And then there's no longer an urgency in your heart, and there's no desire for holiness, and there's no desire for readiness. And I believe it's the neglect of prophecy that has led to so many problems in the church and outside of the church. So if you're going to study the Bible, and you're going to teach the Bible, you're going to spend a lot of time speaking about prophecy in its context. Really, this is the only holy book that attempts to do this, that dares to do it. No other religious writings dare to jump into the arena of prophecy with such startlingly, startlingly, whatever the word is, startling clarity and pinpoint accuracy. 
You'll recall, hold your place in Daniel. I know we'll get to chapter eight, but I wanna lay a foundation for our upcoming studies here. Turn over to Luke's gospel, would you, in chapter four? How important is prophecy? Well, I suggest to you a careful study of the life of our savior and our mentor and our leader and our master and our pastor and our shepherd, everything that Jesus is to us, I suggest to you that the very first message that he shares in his public ministry that's recorded for us was prophetic in nature. Notice with me in Luke chapter four, pick up with me in verse 16. Luke chapter four in verse 16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. You Bible students, you recognize that this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 61. When Isaiah wrote chapter 61, it was prophetic in nature. He was writing what's known as a messianic prophecy of what would happen when Messiah came and the purpose of Messiah, one of the purposes. So Jesus, he comes to Nazareth. Those of you that go to Israel with us, we will be in the city of Nazareth. We will actually visit a place known as Nazareth Village. And it is a, it is a laid out area that, you know, on the YMCA property there that we'll walk through and they'll kind of give us a feel of what it would have been like during the time of Jesus. It's a really cool visit. So we'll be in Nazareth in the literal area. Jesus comes in, it's where he grew up. He was handed the scroll in the synagogue and he, it, the day that it was there, the scroll of Isaiah was where they were reading and he, write, he reads to them, verses 18 and 19, he reads to them what Isaiah wrote prophetically. Now check this out, verse 20. He rolled up the scroll handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue looked in at him intently. And he began to speak to them, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. As Jesus starts out his public ministry, he shows to everyone what was said about me prophetically is fulfilled right now in your eyes. <laughs> to me, that's super powerful. Like all that you have wanted, everything you were expecting, the hope of Messiah, this is being fulfilled. It is fulfilled right now in your eyes. It's just plain exciting to see God in this light. Now, some of you, I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands, but some of you were alive in 1948 and you witnessed with your own eyes the rebirth of the nation of Israel. I don't know if you were excited about it, but I hope you were. I'm going to ask for hands. Was anyone in here alive in 1948? Okay, just want to make sure. So there are a few. Do you remember when Israel became a nation? Anybody remember? Any other hands? Any, you were four years old. Did you watch it? Did you see it? Did you hear about it? Did they call you in and say, Vicky, you can't believe what's happening. Four years old. Okay, so 1948 would make a lot of kiddos. So as a kiddo, you were alive during the time of prophecy being fulfilled. It's exciting times to know that what God says will come to pass. What God says will come to pass. 
And some are skeptical and go, wait a minute, I've been waiting for so many things to come to pass. You can bank on, you can trust on the reliable God like it has happened in the past in his perfect timing, it will happen again. God who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, he steps outside of time and space. He declares specific predictions and events that will not happen for hundreds of years. Any and every prediction in the Bible will come to pass perfectly. And today we come to a section of Daniel where he has another dream. Now we are able to look back with clarity on these dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel because they looked forward to coming kingdoms at the time that they had them. Now many things have come to pass, and of what they've seen, there's only one kingdom that hasn't come to pass yet, and that's that revived Roman Empire that are of the feet and the toes and the horns that we've been learning about. That hasn't happened, but all the rest have happened. And Daniel in chapter 8 has yet another dream. It's actually the second of his four visions recorded in Daniel. And he sees four kingdoms coming and looking forward all the way into the future. Last time, the dream including, included four coming kingdoms. And while this one, we're going to gain greater insight on two of those four. And so as you're reading through, hopefully you're reading ahead, getting ready for the next study that we're in. That's one of the advantages of going through the Bible verse by verse. When we finish a section, you know you can read the next section and we'll be there eventually. And you can read ahead. So maybe some of you read ahead in chapter 8 and you're like, man, another dream? Can we just skip through? We understand the Medes and Persians, Greece. We get it. You've explained it. Why another dream? Are we really going to study them? I mean, we got it from Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is the second one from Daniel. And all these beasts and animals, isn't that enough? Well, I want to introduce you to a, a teaching tool that is very important that God himself uses over and over again. And I bet you do too. It's the teaching tool known as repetition. Repetition is a very important tool that God uses in his word. And you can be sure as limited space that God had in his word, anything that's repeated is very important. Anything that's repeated over and over again is super important. So these visions and these dreams, I believe, is God's desire in us to pound the, the uh, nail down and to pound the point home that what God says about future kingdoms, as we look back, you go, oh yes, Babylonian kingdom, there's evidence for that. Oh yes, the Medo-Persians, there's evidence for that. Oh yes, then the Greece, Greeks came in, there's evidence for that. Oh, and then the Romans overtook the Greeks but kept the culture. There's evidence for that. Oh, then there's that last kingdom that hasn't happened yet. And you have evidence, 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 and now you're waiting for something to happen. And you're tested and tempted. Oh, that's not going to happen. Oh, didn't it happen with Babylon? Didn't it happen with the Medo-Persians? Didn't it happen with Greece? Didn't it happen with Rome? What was the prevailing ruling entity at the time of the first coming of Jesus Christ. Rome. Rome was ruling the world. And I believe it was the Romans that God had sovereignly ordained to be in power, not only because they would use crucifixion to kill Jesus to fulfill prophecy, that that would be the mechanism, but also the Romans kept the Greek culture, which was what? A common world language. 
the Koine Greek, the common everyday Greek. It wasn't the fanciful Greek because there's a higher level of Greek. There was a, a level of Greek that everybody spoke, the Koine Greek, and that was the known language of the world at the time. And they also did something that was fascinating that helped spread the gospel very, very rapidly. It's known, well, a couple of things. Number one was the Roman road system. They built roads everywhere to get everywhere. And they believed that transportation was very important. And they also had something known as Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Although it was enforced, there was a relative peace around the world. And God knew at the time that Rome overseeing the world would be very significant. But not only that, like we kind of look back and we can see those things, but God predicted it hundreds of years in some cases, thousands of years before we, you could even ever think such a thing would exist. And so let me give you a few things about reputi- repetition and we'll jump into the text. We're only going to cover a few verses today. Again, I want to lay a foundation for us. Why is repetition so important in the Bible? Why is it a great teacher? Number one, repetition is a great teacher. Repetition is a great teacher. Repetition is a great teacher. Repetition is what? How did you learn that? (laughs) Just saying it a couple of times. Repetition is a great teacher. When you hear something again and again, over and over, it comes back to you quicker. You get a handle on it. It's one of the things that the more you're in the word of God, the more you remember it. And oftentimes I'll ask someone, do you you have a life verse? Have you memorized it? And sometimes they'll say yes, sometimes they'll say no. And most often they'll say, I know it, I just forgot the address. Well, what's more important, knowing the word or remembering the address? (laughs) Knowing the word. And how do you know the word? Because of repetition. And repetition's a great teacher. Number two, I believe God uses repetition because it's God's great teacher. It's God's tool. Throughout the Bible, God chooses inspired. Remember, the author of the Bible is God. He used humans to jot down his inspiration but the author of the Bible is God, and he over and over repeats and repeats and repeats so that we'll learn, we'll act, we'll learn, we'll act, we'll learn, and we'll act. People get frustrated in Bible study over a long period of time when they hear the same thing over and over again. And it's not always the mistake or the purpose of the pastor to repeat if you are here and you hear the same thing over and over again I wouldn't be too discouraged because you could be any part of the Bible and hear the same thing over and over again you could be in any part of the Bible and because you're dealing with something in your life you're hearing the Bible through the filter of God wanting to get your attention on that area wanting to get your repentance, wanting to get your action, wanting to get you, you to be softened or humbled. Like, so you could be studying Revelation and you hear humility. You could be studying Genesis and you hear humility. You could be studying Daniel and you hear humility. Even though the pastors never mention it, humility is the theme because that's what God wants to get into your heart. And repetition is the way God reminds us. The Bible, the Bible there are challenging times, challenging verses like in Daniel, it takes a little bit of study. But most of the Bible is pretty easy to understand. God's heart for you, his desire for you, his heart for you in the old covenant and how he dealt with the people in in the old covenant and now how he deals with us in the new covenant through his gracious love. It's always, it's much of the Bible is easy to understand. A simple reading. 
will give you enough to act on. And then thirdly, not only is repetition a great teacher, not only two is repetition God's great teacher, but thirdly, repetition feeds a serious student. Repetition feeds a serious student. Daniel was a serious student of God's word. You'll find when you get to chapter 9, chapter 9 opens up with Daniel reading the writings of Jeremiah. He was a student of the word. And so he sought wisdom and clarity on these visions and dreams. It wasn't just enough to have them. He wanted to know what they meant and how they applied. It wasn't enough. He wanted the interpretation. And you can jot it down in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. It says, it is God's privilege to, to conceal things, but it's the king's privilege to discover them. And we have the privilege of discovering God and what he wants to say to us in his word. And so God enjoys the full capacity of all wisdom and understanding, and we don't. And we seek that through his word. We all wish we knew more than we know, but how bad? How bad do you really want to know the heart of God? How bad do you really want to follow? Like sometimes you cover you cover the fact that you have no desire for the deeper things of God because you lean on your own understanding and you're able to cover it because you know a little bit more of the Bible than the person next to you. So you're able to cover that you just keep repeating the same old thing over and over again and you haven't really grown in learning the, the more about the character and nature of God. But you, you kind of have a, you know, and every pastor's tempted with this too where they have hobby horses and they just keep staying, they just keep staying on the same thing over and over again. Listen, Will you take time to study God's word? Will you take the time? Now, I recognize for you investing an evening uh, in midweek, which is very challenging with all the responsibilities that we have, but for the sake of those listening on the radio, will you take the time? Now, I know having it on the radio is better than other things you could have on the radio, but it's hard to concentrate when you're driving. It's hard to concentrate and say, you know, that, that was a great word, but I need to jot that down. And you can't really take notes while you're driving. I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage you to do that unless you pull over. But for the sake of those listening at another time, are you putting to your desire the kind of action that will take you deeper into the things of God? Seeking clarity and understanding how important it is. So here's Daniel. He has another vision Pick up with me in Daniel chapter 8 in verse 1. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision. This is just a quick reminder. We're not in chronological order at this point in Daniel. This is going back a few chapters because we get that because it's Belshazzar's reign. And we already know that Babylon has already, has already moved on. Uh, we already know that's happened. So Daniel's taking us back in his writings a few years, maybe 20 years or so. So he says, during the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. So here's another revelation, another dream, another startling dream that's coming on Daniel. And Notice it says in verse 3, as I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of his way to the west, to the north, and to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. 
So you got a difficult dream, a difficult vision. More often than not, what we're faced with are difficult scriptures and difficult passages. I've already recommended a resource to us as a church. It's not in print anymore, so you've got to get a uh, used copy, but there's used copies available. Great Bible difficulty resource called When Critics Ask by Norm Geisler. When Critics Ask. It's a great resource to come to on difficult passages or supposed contradictions. It's a tool I've used for many, many, many years. I have it electronically now, so it's all tied to different verses and easier to find things. But what do you do? Do we immediately just close it? This is too hard to understand. I don't know, horn, butted everything to the west. Uh, you know, where's the Uli River and Eli? You know, so many things to try to figure out. When you come to a difficult passage, do you just close the Bible, move on? Do you skip over it? Do you forget it? Do you just claim it's too hard? Do you grab a commentary or a dictionary, which are very helpful? A Bible handbook, everyone here should have a Bible handbook. Uh, the one I recommend is Haley's Bible Handbook. Uh, it's simple. It's kind of like a one or two paragraph commentary on the whole Bible. And it's easy that you can get the big theme. You won't get a lot of detail from it, but you can get the big theme of different chapters and how they tie together. Haley's Bible Handbook. But I want to suggest to you something that you already have, and that is the Bible. The Bible is its own best commentary. The Bible helps us to understand other parts of the Bible. And we should seek to find our answers in the Bible first. The first place that I look for answers is any of the different scripture references. Sometimes in the, in, in the Bible I use, um, really I do most of my study online now, so there's a lot of links and a lot of connections and, and one resource that's very helpful. And let me give you a couple. I know there's a lot of resources. You're like, man, but it would be good to have these in your library. First of all, there's a free resource online. It's called blueletterbible.org. Blue Letter Bible, the way they want you to remember it is like the red letters, but it's the Blue Letter Bible. It started with some guys over at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and it's just exploded. Uh, free, powerful resources there. And I haven't been on there for a while, but one of the resources you want to look to find different passages that are connected to the scriptures is a resource called a treasury of scripture knowledge. A treasury of scripture knowledge. Now, I don't know, I forget the guy that wrote it, but he devoted his whole life to cross-referencing scriptures. So what I get to do on my computer is I just click a verse and I have a whole list of those treasury of scripture knowledge that I can then hover over all the verses and read them all. And it's like, oh, that's good, that's good. A lot of times when I say, hey, consider this particular verse, I got it from this treasury, treasury of scripture knowledge. And I forget the guy, but I can't wait to meet him in heaven and say, thank you. There's another guy you're gonna to wanna to thank in heaven too. His name is Strong, because he created something called the Strong's Concordance, where he devoted his whole life to itemize every single word used in the King James Bible and give it a number. And he assigned every word a number. I, I literally just used this on the show today. I right-click a word on my computer, I look at the Strong's number, and then I slide that Strong's number over to the go-to resource that I've been using lately, which is a whole different, and you can email me if you're interested in that. I got a lot of resources. That, those are, like you guys build houses, you have hammers and stuff, you like Lowe's, I like the library. Uh, the, the books are my tools. So at any rate, treasury scripture knowledge, because you think, well, how can the Bible, how can I 
How can I let the Bible be its own best commentary if I don't even understand this verse? Well, one of the ways is to get some tools. So recognizing that getting all these books may not be uh, in your budget, Blue Letter Bible is a good place to start. It's free. You can support them financially if you want, um, but all, all of it's free. And the Bible, it's its own best commentary. It needs to be the first thing we look at. You serious Bible students and you serious Bible teachers should not be using commentaries till you finish your message. Until, and only to use commentaries to say, when I open up a commentary, I either go, wow, that's a good point. I want to develop that. Or, man, I completely missed that. I didn't see that. And I think we need to add that. And on occasion, I may come to a conclusion where a commentator says, proves me wrong. And I'm just like, oh, Oh, I really missed that. And so commentators, people that have gone before us, pastors that have written out their sermons like Spurgeon or Wearsby or quite a few others, uh, Barnes Notes and on and on the list goes, should only be secondary. The Bible is its own best commentary. So I want to show you in verse 20 of chapter 8, if you just jump down to verse 20, it says, we figure out what in the world is Daniel's dreams mean Where are you going to find that out, Ed? Verse 20. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. We know them as Medes and Persians. And the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. So we find the interpret before somebody, because with prophecy, people like to make, a, make it more than what it is. They like to extrapolate and make things up. And I mean, you see some of these guys on TV and they're just way out there when the Bible will give us insight. You know, to study the book of Revelation, Daniel and Revelation go together. To really understand Revelation, you have to have a good grasp of the entirety of the Old Testament. Because so many of the illustrations that are given to John on the island of Patmos in Revelation are already spoken of in the Old Testament. We already know what they mean. We already understand their significance because they've been used earlier. So you can't just make up your own ideas. You can't just make it up as you go. The Bible is one compact unit in its own best commentary. So we are introduced back in chapter 8 now In this vision, it says, in verse 8, he's standing in the fortress of Susa uh, in the province. He's standing beside, and he looks up, it says, verse 3, and he sees a ram with two long horns. The ram represents, according to the scriptures, the Medo-Persian Empire. And we're going to zero in on that. The ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And, And the question is, well, how do you know that, Ed? Did you just make that up? I didn't. We just read in verse 20. In verse 20, it says the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And I just did something right now. You know what I did? I repeated something for you. So that through repetition, I can make the point that the Bible is its own best commentary. Don't forget that. If they only read one book and you don't go to any websites and you don't go to any other resources, you never buy another book, if you master the Bible, the Holy Spirit will teach you and lead you into all truth. Because you might be going here, man, Ed, it's just enough for me to read the Bible. Well, good. Read the Bible. If you have extra time and you have a little bit of extra time and you're not that big of a reader, read more of the Bible. And if you've got a little bit of extra time after that, just read more of the Bible. 
And God will bless that in your life. Don't read it like you have to understand every single word. Just read it open to the Holy Spirit. Like a Bible study like this. Don't sit through a Bible study and go, I have to understand every single thing the pastor says. No, just come ready to receive what the Lord has for you that day and has for you that moment. You try this on me. Try this. I'll, I'll give you a test. You sit through this Bible study. In a month, re-listen to this Bible study and tell me if God doesn't teach you something different through it. Because you'll be in a different place in a month. You don't even have to wait a month. You can do a week. You don't have to wait a week. It could be a day. However you walked in, the condition of your heart today, God had a word for you. And if you choose to listen to it again, God will have another word for you and speak directly to your heart. There is that part of the Bible that is the logos. It is the written word. It is the specific word that's being used. But there's also a part of the word that is the rhema. And it's God's word to the moment. And God, we, we would often say, we take the word of God and, and we read it. And then we would say, instead of the rhema word, although that's, that's the Hebrew for it, we would say that that's the application of it. God has an application. Doesn't it ever, doesn't it ever shock you? Uh, maybe even going home, you come to, to, to service with a friend, with your spouse, and you hear the exact same message. And then when you're talking about it, it sounds like you were in two different rooms. Because the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. Same message, same teacher, same moment, same text, same application, same dumb story, same lame jokes, all of it. The same place. Talking about here, of course. Same place. But then you walk away going, were you in the same room as me? Because that's not what I got out. What, what I got was the middle person, repetition, repetition. I just, I keep getting this repetition. And then you go, well, what I got is I need to be in the Word more. And you're in the same Bible study, same place. And the Holy Spirit using the same text, but to bring things to your heart. There's the Logos, what it says, what it means, and then there's the Rhema, how God is applying it in your life. Very important. So the Ram of the Medes and the Persians in his dream. And the king of Media was larger, was the larger home, or horn I should say, the bigger empire that helped Babylon can't conquer Assyria. Persia, a smaller kingdom, would come later. So you notice one of the horns, it says in verse 3, was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of his way to the west, this is verse 4, to the north, to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. Together they become an incredibly strong, and they conquered the world in three different directions. And jot this down, We're not, we don't have time to develop it, but in some 200 years before he was born, 200 years. You know, you, you, you want a scope of, of what, 200 years here. Our country, the United States, is just a little bit over 200 years old, just a few years after 200. So the entirety of the, the lifespan plus a few years is what we're talking Before, if you can think, before the United States became a country, it was predicted who the President of the United States would be in the year 2024 or 2028 or whatever year we're going to have the election. Consider this, way more significant. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, 200 years before he was born, God predicted by name, by name, King Cyrus. You can read it for yourself in Isaiah 45, verse 1. The God of all the earth knows history in advance. And so God reveals it here to Daniel, these things before it happens. Because when he has the dream, Babylon is still, King Belshazzar is still in office. So this hasn't happened yet in Daniel's life. And he receives it prophetically. It's the downfall of every man, every woman who chooses that path. 
that route, when you see what the leaders of Babylon did, they will fall. Cyrus, like many before him and after him, learned, and I quote, the powers that will someday be, the powers that be will someday be the powers that were. It's true for you too. The powers that be will someday be the powers that were. That's why to live with an eternal perspective is so vital. I received an email today, so I was going through my email, of a sister had mentioned that uh, recently there was a significant loss in her life. And, and I was reminded of being heavenly minded. I was reminded of what Jesus said. He said, where your treasures are, uh, there your heart will be also. And I was reminded that as we have so many of our loved ones over the years in heaven, we become more heavenly minded. That's where our treasure is, our earthly treasure. You know, and you think about in relationship to people that you love, that's probably the most significant expression of love that you can have on earth is with a person to another person. You love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Of course, that's the most significant. But in this relationship, in this room, the most significant, most valued treasure that we have is another person, is a relationship. And the more we invest in that person, the more that where treasures are. And wherever our treasures are, our heart's going to naturally follow. And then comes our possessions. You know, things that we value, money, things, houses, cars, whatever. And whatever we treasure, our heart's going to be in it. And we're going to care about it. And we're going to think about it. And we're going to be worried about it. And we're going to be anxious about it. And how careful we need to be in these last days. Jesus put it this way. You can jot it down in Matthew 16. Jesus asked us this question. And how many times do we need to ask it of ourselves? What, of what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul. Without God, any position is really hopeless and meaningless. Any possession is meaningless. And here with the Medo-Persians, you've got Babylon and their leadership and their authority and autonomy around the world. And then the Medes and Persians knock them off and they're ruling the world. And there's always an Alexander the Great ready to take them out because he's waiting in the wings in this vision. Notice in verse 5, while I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns, and the ram was helpless and the goat knocked him down, trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The goat became very powerful. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Now, can we just pause for a second? And can you imagine having this dream? Rams and goats and horns and crazy fights and... Dan, I don't, Daniel must have been overwhelmed by what he saw. But we know the goat represents Greece. We know that already. The Medes and the Persians grew great, but this one was greater. And the male goat was none other than Greece. And the notable horn between his eyes was a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. We can look back on history with 2020 eyesight, clarity. Alexander the Great was the son of Philip of Macedon, 
who was himself a great conqueror, bringing Greece and Macedonia together. He was moving against the Medes and the Persians and was murdered when Alexander was just 19 years old. As Alexander was growing up, he worried his father because he was a bookworm, kind of a house-type child, reading all the time, studying. So he brought in a personal tutor for his son, a man by the name of Aristotle, who trained and tutored him till he was of age. At the age of 21, Alexander decided to avenge the death of his father by conquering the Medo-Persian Empire, and he took off to take on and take over the world. In just 11 years, he did so, moving rapidly and quickly, just as verse 5 says. Rapidly, he crossed the land so swiftly that he didn't touch the ground. He was vicious and furious and quick and methodical. But he also had a serious drinking problem, out of control. And in 323 B.C., is where verse 8 took place. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. When he became strong, his horn was broken. And there are a lot of stories surrounding his death. One notable one is that in his depression, his drinking increased. And why was he depressed? Well, sitting at the banks of the Euphrates, he lamented that there was nothing else to conquer, that he had done it all, He even argued with his generals, wanting to find someone else to take down and take over. And his drinking increased, and he died a drunk and depressed. Some even suggest in some stories that during his depression and drunkenness, that Aristotle actually poisoned him. It was June 10, 323 BC, cut off Alexander the Great at the age of 33. Now you say, Ed, why explain all these things in such detail? You see, because looking back on prophecy, we can see the detail of what God said. And as you look forward to prophecy, you too can see the details on what God said. Oh, Jesus is going to return. Oh, it's not going to happen. Oh, you know, can you think of of the prophetic word that was given to Noah? When we get back into Hebrews, Noah's the next guy we study. Imagine the prophetic word spoken to Noah. Go and build an ark. And then there's silence for about 100 years in his life as he's building the ark. It didn't happen overnight. We're reading the the story of Noah and we turn a page and we're like, man, it happened so fast. No, it took a long time. It took a long time. And what what, what was it that, hey, there's judgment gonna come. And I'm building a boat for what? Oh, it's gonna be a flood. Flood, what's a flood? Oh, it's gonna rain. What's rain? And God is speaking prophetically to Noah's life even though he hadn't seen it happen. And what happened? He had to what? trust God. He had to live by faith. But see, your faith has substance and your faith has evidence. And when you think of prophecy and the coming of the Lord and his coming at hand and the things that are happening in the world today that no other generation has ever, ever seen. And you go, well, you know, I don't know. That's all you you guys, just prophets. You're just obsessed with prophecy. Oh, Oh, you guys, you just take the Bible seriously. Yes. Yes, we do. And when I open up to chapter 8 of Daniel, Daniel took it seriously. And now we look back and go, man, this was accurate to a T of what God wanted to communicate and reveal to us. 
As remember, Daniel is a key to unlock prophecy in the Bible. It's a key to unlock revelation. It's called a little revelation. And to me, I love the book of Daniel. It's causing me to slow down and study harder. It's causing me to read more. And why did he get these visions? Notice back in verse 1. It says, during the third year of Belshazzar's reign, I saw another vision following the one that I had already appeared to me. He was receiving vision after vision because God was using repetition in his life. And I also believe he received another vision because he wanted God to speak to him. How often I hear of people, I just don't hear from the Lord, I just don't understand, I don't know what's happening, and I'm not sure. And one of the questions you have to ask is, are you in the word? And you're like, well, yeah, I read the Bible. But do you read the Bible expecting God to speak to you? And when you read the Bible, are you letting God speak to you on the things he wants to speak to you? You come to God with this menu. Tell me this, tell me this, tell me this, tell me this. Like God is some fortune teller. He's just going to bend over backwards. Oh, I'll tell you everything you want to know. No, God is always the initiator. And what he speaks to us is what he wants us to know. Because if I was Daniel, I'm like, man, can you give me a better dream? Like some nice dream, candy canes, candy land, you know, can you just like, a, whatever, it's something nice. I know there's a season in my life where sleeping, I'm just like, man, Lord, would you just give me something nice? Would you take these thoughts out of my mind? I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. I'm just like, God, just, but no, this is where I was at. This is what he was using in my life. This was the condition of my life, and, and I needed to be open to whatever God wanted to speak to me in the condition of my life. That you come to God with a blank slate, allowing him to speak to you. These visions come during the rule of Babylon in the 500s. Alexander the Great comes and starts to rule in the hundreds BC. And some 400 years before it happened, God declared it would be so. 400 years. Just to validate even more, the Dead Sea Scrolls, another place we'll visit in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls have copies of Daniel in them before the events happen. It's powerful. So if you can trust his word when it predicts the future, then what? Well, then you know there are many predictions to heed, but I might share one more with you today, and that's this. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a prediction. It's a prophetic word. Unless you, listening to me, are born again, you won't see. that. That's a prediction on your life. It's a prediction for all of eternity. Unless you are born again, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. And I invite you to consider the condition of your eternal soul today. This is fun stuff to study. Fascinating. Accurate. But it would be a whole lot more fun and fascinating and accurate if you're born again. And your life is hidden in Christ. And your sins are forgiven. So Father, we're asking you to uh, pour out your spirit upon us today. Uh, it's a lot to take in, for sure. It's it's a lot to take in. I can't imagine what Daniel felt. But I pray, God, that I've been accurate to the work of your Holy Spirit, that I have been an open vessel exercising the gift of pastor-teacher, and I pray for your word to move forward in power. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.